0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SUP China. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, website, and growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Quarantine here in the safely sanitized Seneca studio at my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from his own sequestration on his sprawling stolen idol in Nashville, Tennessee— is a man who once famously said on this very show, I recently sold some Bitcoin and bought a drone, an utterance which won him broad acclaim for the most 2018 thing ever said. And for reasons that will be clear enough to you soon, the fact that he bought a drone is very relevant to today's discussion. First, though, Jeremy, greet the people. How are you, man?
0: (laughs) Hey, Kaiser. Hey, people. (laughs) Doing very well. You know, while the world burns, but I can't personally complain about anything.
1: You've been out flying that drone at all?
0: Uh, oh, yeah. I, I fly my drone nearly every day. It's, uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Did you know that if certain immigration and customs enforcement officers are to be believed, your Chinese-made drone might be sending sensitive data about the civil defense infrastructure of Middle Tennessee out to those communists? How does that make you feel, Jeremy?
0: you know, I, I'm kind of okay with them knowing the <laughs> the intimate details of my holler, you know uh, that's that's absolutely fine. I welcome them in person to come over and check it out. I don't think it's. Uh going to affect the national security
1: of the country. But maybe we'll find
0: out differently today.
1: (laughs) We won't. Uh, So so on the more serious things, over the last couple of years, since the Trump administration launched what some have called its tech cold war against China, Chinese-made drones have gotten what you might call the Huawei treatment here in the U.S. Uh, Putative concerns over national security have prompted some American lawmakers to introduce in the fall of 2019 a bill that would bar U.S. federal agencies from purchasing drones made in or containing key components from China. And uh, just this month in March, a draft executive order calling for basically that same ban on Chinese-made drones was leaked to Politico. Uh, Pressure from Congress and from the administration has resulted already in the grounding of all drone flights by agencies like the Department of the Interior, which uses drones for a huge range of important tasks.
0: Here to talk about this is Brendan Shulman, Vice President of Public Policy and Legal Affairs for DJI, which is the manufacturer of my drone and also the world's (laughs) biggest consumer drone manufacturer. Previously, Brendan was head of the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice at the law firm of uh, Kramer Levine in New York, and he is also a member of the Federal Aviation Administration's Drone Advisory Committee. And thank you, the Federal a- Aviation Administration, for giving me a drone pilot's license. Um, all right. Brendan Schulman, welcome to
2: Seneca. It's great to join you, thank you.
0: Brendan, let's start with some of the basics about the company you work for, DJI. So, uh, as I understand it, it all started with a remote control helicopter enthusiast named Frank Wong in his dorm room at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Is that right? Can you tell us a bit about the history of the company?
2: Uh, Yes, Uh, in fact, uh, drone technology, at least the the technology we're referring to today, really has its origins relating to model aircraft and and hobbyist types of remote control uh, airplanes and helicopters. And like me, when I was uh, younger, our company's founder, Frank, was uh, an enthusiast uh, in model aircraft and and helicopters. But he had a different take on it. He realized that if we could make model aircraft easy to fly and if we could stabilize them dynamically as well as uh, stabilize a camera uh, attached to them, we could create an amazing cinematic tool and, and also a tool that would be useful in countless other kinds of missions. And so he founded the company right out of his dorm room in Hong Kong, very similar in many ways, to the stories you hear about tech companies being founded in Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah. So DJI is actually a private company. Where where did it raise its funding? And is the company now considering a listing? And give us an idea of how big it is. Uh, well, at this point, we've got, I think the last count was 14,000 employees globally,
2: hmm. very much a global company, headquartered in Shenzhen, which, is, as you would probably know, is the tech center of uh, many consumer electronics companies. Indeed. Yeah, it's, um, you know, over the years, when I when I joined in 2015, the company had, around that time, completed uh, significant financing from American venture capital uh, firms uh, in Silicon Valley. You know, we're talking about Kleiner Perkins, Excel Partners, those kinds of uh, name brand American investors. Yeah, the big marquee VCs, yeah. That's right, and... You know, given the success of the company uh, during what you might call the the boom times for consumer drones, including the period at which I think you got your own, um, we've been able to put the proceeds of the sales right back into R&D, help grow the company, uh, design new products, including for the enterprise and commercial markets, uh, and really just build on our own success over the years.
0: Hmm. Brendan... W- what is DJI's market share in consumer drones right now? And where are its major markets? Um, and I guess uh, what per- because we're talking about a problem in the United States right now, what percentage of DJI's revenues come from the United States? So we don't
2: have our own estimate of market share, and it really depends on how you define the market. Are you including small little toys that you buy at the drugstore? Are you including sort of large, uh, you know, 2,000-pound aircraft uh, that you might find in, in more of a, an industrial application. But, but I think most observers of the commercial drone market would, would tell you that we're around 70% of the kinds of electric-powered drones that are useful either for taking artistic photographs or video from the air uh, or in life-saving, beneficial missions, including firefighting, search and rescue, law enforcement... Uh, and, and many other things. Wow.
0: Do you know how much of your U.S. revenues come from procurement by federal agencies?
2: Uh, we, don't, we don't track our, our revenue in, in quite that way. So I don't, uh, sitting here, I don't have a specific uh, figure for you. But I, I think it's safe to say that like a lot of other consumer electronics around the world, the United States is, is the largest market, uh, probably roughly a third or something like that. Uh, that's my personal guess. I don't. I don't keep track of our numbers in that way. Uh, and then, with respect to government sales, it's a fairly new uh, area for us. If you consider where this technology came from and who was adopting it first, it was very much the consumers. And then from there, it grew into uh, commercial and enterprise sales. And I, I would say, of the enterprise sales, a, a small fraction would relate to to government agencies, some of which are federal. So the federal market is actually not that large, because many of those organizations are still learning about the technology. They are putting it to amazing uses, but we're still on the on the growth curve for those kinds of applications.
1: But pretty clearly, this is an issue that still I mean, it, it sticks in your craw. I mean, the idea that you you might be banned from this segment, however small, uh, is there a reason for that? Do you think that that would maybe ref- just somehow impact your your broader consumer sales? Well, we're
2: certainly we're driven very much by what is of concern and interest from the consumers, from our customers. We've learned a lot from them over the years in terms of the features that are important to them. And, and this is just one of those features. You know, it, we, we certainly want the most sophisticated and beneficial uses of our products to be used with confidence by the most sophisticated uh, organizations in the world they're doing beneficial things. That's our mission to really uh, have the innovation out there in the hands of people who can save lives, protect property, uh, and realize new kinds of efficiency as well as make their own jobs safer, Right. for example, in a dangerous mission. Um, so for us, it's not, not at all a question of how big is one market or another. It's more about the intellectual uh, desire to satisfy the customer who is asking us to do something that's interesting and new, but also really important to putting the technology into the hands of people who can use it
1: best. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Huawei, as you know, has been in all sorts of hot water with the U.S. government. Uh, It claims to be a private company. Some people believe that's true. The company has always basically been dogged by uh, suspicions of its close ties with the Chinese Communist Party or specifically with the, the People's Liberation Army. Um, does DJI just for the record? Do you have substantial contracts with Chinese law enforcement, uh, with the Chinese military, with any other Chinese governmental agencies? We're a consumer
2: electronics company, so you know our products are available off the shelf. So, so the kinds of agencies right. you've mentioned could uh, and probably do purchase those products from any number of sales channels. But in my five years at the company, I haven't seen any signs of. Uh, influence or uh, sort of unwarranted uh, connections between what we do in terms of the products we make, the, the functionality they have, the, uh, the policy outcomes that we advocate for. I've I spent five years advocating for reasonable risk-based regulation for drones uh, of all kinds, including our own. Uh, and, and all of that has been in furtherance of our mission as the leading company in the industry of
0: enabling the customers to do great things. But, um, I, I, you, um how to put it, um, it doesn't really matter whether Huawei is a private company or not, because just like Tencent and Alibaba, if the Communist Party goes to Huawei and says, give us data on individual X, they have no choice. They have to give the government data on individual X. Um, I, I think that really is, is the crux of the issue. So... What protection do Americans have against that? Uh, with respect to drone
2: uh, operations, a lot of protection, uh, and and that's that's because of the na- both the nature of the drone technology itself, as well as the various safeguards we've built in. And, and by the way, like any tech company, we obviously comply with the laws in each jurisdiction in which we operate. So in the in the event of let's say uh, an accident involving a drone, which has happened in the United States, we would comply, as as we are bound to, with a subpoena for information. In fact, we've been of assistance to the National Transportation Safety Board in a number of collisions and incidents between drones and aircraft in the United States. So there are very good legitimate reasons to cooperate with the laws in each jurisdiction. Now, that said, we, we certainly have done a lot to assure our customers that drones are are safe from either inappropriate or unwarranted access to their data. And it really starts with what the functionality of a drone is. The drone is a camera. Now it happens to fly, which means that you aren't holding it in your hand. You can position it in three-dimensional space. That's what makes it so great. You know, you can take an aerial photograph of your backyard barbecue and post it to social media rather than just taking a a handheld uh, photograph from six feet off the ground. Uh, and that's that's an amazingly artistic and creative use of, of a camera. But you decide where you're pointing that camera. So if there's something sensitive that you do, you can just choose not to use the drone or not to use it in a way that might compromise security. Now, once you do take a picture or video with the drone, none of that uh, image content is automatically being collected by us or coming back to our our systems because we have no business interest in the data. We sell the hardware. So unlike other tech companies you might think of, where the data itself is the product and information about the users is the product, or at least is the source of revenue, our source of revenue is is the hardware sale that ends once you buy the drone. So what you do with the drone doesn't really matter to anything that we do as a business. Now, you can choose if you want to, to back up your flight records because you might want to save a copy of it for data protection purposes. Mm-hmm. You might want to share your photos or videos on social media if you're that kind of person, but that's entirely your choice. And, and over the years, we've implemented features that enhance that choice. One example is what we call local data mode. So just just like the airplane mode on your phone that turns off the connectivity between your mobile phone and the Internet, we have in our software local data mode, which also turns off transmissions of things like software updates and uh, FAA temporary flight restrictions, things you might want to know when you're flying your drone, but you don't need. Um, that provides an added layer of assurance. And then we went on from there to do other things that uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you whether you want to get into things we've done for uh, government users specifically, and what we call the government edition version of our products.
1: I think a lot of listeners will hear the word drone and think somehow of. Of, of military UAVs, of these unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, as in drone strikes of this sort, they're still happening in parts of the Middle East and, and, and Western Asia and Pakistan and so forth. Uh, but what DJI makes are they're called drones, but do they have any relation to the kinds of drones used by uh, national militaries?
2: So our, our products are very much uh, an evolution of model airplane and model helicopter technology. Basically, if you've ever seen someone flying a radio control model airplane uh, in, in a park or at a club field, th- this is a sort of enhanced version of that, uh, in which the, the drone is more like a helicopter. It can hover. Uh, it's very easy to use. It's self-stabilizing. And it contains or carries a camera that can be used to take pictures of or to provide a, a live video stream from the air, which is very useful, for example, in a a search and rescue type of mission where someone is out there, uh, and in fact we have dozens uh, if not hundreds of stories of people using these kinds of drones to find missing people, people in avalanches, floods, fires, uh, confused people after a car accident who go wandering off into the freezing night. Uh, It's really powerful, um, but it's actually simple, and it is not a version of the military systems that were specifically developed to carry arms or to fly thousands and thousands of miles away in order to conduct a, a, a military operation. These are piloted within visual line of sight, typically a few hundred feet away, uh, to take a picture, for example, of damage to a roof after a storm.
0: Brennan, a couple of years ago, uh, Clay Shirky, who uh, perhaps we could call a technology guru if the phrase isn't too offensive, was on our show. Uh, talking about how the whole supply chain for all sorts of advanced consumer electronics has basically moved to the Pearl River Delta, and especially Shenzhen. Uh, I believe he used the example of drones. How there are basically whole floors of buildings where everyone is selling components for drones. Can you give us a sense of what it's like in in there in Shenzhen? What that vertically integrated ecosystem really looks like. And the advantage that this confers on Chinese drone, China-based drone makers, uh, of which DJI is, of course, the most prominent.
2: I've been there about twenty times, uh, maybe a little more at this point, and it, it's always amazing to see the energy. I think the, um, you know, right from the people who are designing the 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 next drone, and just to see them come up with an idea, and then literally like run out get the components they need, put it together, test it, sometimes like right in the lot, right across the street, um, and then run it back up, make some adjustments, go back and, and do it all over again. So the the cycle of innovation is just faster because you can uh, you can order up the components you want to test, test them, and then go back and do your next development cycle um, within hours or, or at least days. Wow. And I think that's really, you know, DJI is unique, I think, in that We've got the, it's the whole end to end, right? The the design of the drone, especially, you know, the ones uh, that, that Frank has worked on directly over the years, all the way down to refining it, making it better, deciding what kind of plastic to use, you know, things that would seem very basic uh, can be uh, decided in, in near real time. And to have one product line, like a drone, where you're doing that end to end development, production, manufacturing, uh, and shipment uh within one company i i think is surely an advantage i mean I'm not a supply chain specialist, but I can see just from my visits there how quickly they're able to uh innovate
1: the next generation of features yeah yeah no i mean it's 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 spectacular it's it's really quite mind blowing um let's let's shift topics here and talk a little bit about your present woes with the u s government and how that all started. Um, I believe when we were talking earlier, you said it was really all from one internal memo at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement's LA office. Is, is that correct?
2: Well, there, there's a few ways to to think about the beginning of the story, but I, I suppose the you know one of the uh, moments in which a lot of things crystallized was an apparent memo. Uh, written by someone at the Los Angeles Office of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. This was not, from our understanding, this was not sent through Washington. It was not actually released or approved or official. It was a draft, and yet it leaked. And it it made a number of allegations specifically about our technology that just from a first reading were absolutely preposterous. Things like the drone actually is still operating when the battery power is turned off. It's connected to satellite <laughs> receivers, it's doing facial recognition. Uh, things like our sales efforts have focused on infrastructure organizations. I know that's not true because I see how how we do sales, and if anything, we've neglected and have been slow to uh, try to roll out products to uh, key markets like that that I think would benefit from drones. Uh, so just you you re- you read this document that's that's anonymous essentially and sourced to an unnamed uh, industry. source who might even be a competitor for all we know because they're not named and it's absurd now uh that said how do you prove a negative right what what do you do when you have an uh, uh the letterhead of an agency even though it's not released on a document that says such absurd things and and we we did what we could obviously we immediately said this is wrong it's untrue but that wasn't enough we we commissioned a uh a consulting firm called kivu to actually examine the technology and and give us their uh analysis on on these allegations and they they walk through the report and said these things are false they're they're not true so we had the in the independent evaluation this was now a couple of years ago but a lot of things have built on that and it, it's it's so amazing like each i mean maybe amazing is the wrong word depressing if anything that every time i go to a meeting even as far away as like the uk house of commons where, where i sh- was asked to testify about safety features that they make reference to this ridiculous memo as if it's true, as if it's the product of of government research and, and thought and science, which it's not, and which we disproved. And yet it lives on uh,
1: as a mythical thing. What do you imagine prompted? I mean, without speculation about a competitor planting this or anything, is there anything that they might have, have actually seen? Anything that might have maybe misdirected them? Was there any data being transmitted um, in a way that they, they might have taken for somehow nefarious. I, 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 it just seems strange that they would have invented this out of whole cloth. Well, I can't speak
2: for them, but I, I do think there's, there, there's a natural explanation to, to all this, which is, th- as part of this, the story I've told you already, which is that the, the, the products were created for consumer use, That was the focus of of our attention for years. And over time, particularly with the release of the FAA's Part 107, um, now about three years ago... um, What was
1: that? I'm sorry. Can you explain what that was?
2: Yes. The FAA's Part 107, those are the rules for commercial operation. Prior to 2016, it was not lawful to use a drone for a commercial purpose, according to the FAA. Ah, I see. Because the FAA lacked the uh, licensing and, and rules required to operate a, a drone, an unmanned aircraft system, as it's called, uh, for a business purpose. Uh, so the FAA, after years of delay, finally released uh, its, uh, its uh, rules for commercial operation in 2016. Uh, and so since that time, there's now been commercial adoption of these technologies, which for decades have been used for recreation and fun. Uh, including by our founder and including by myself. That's actually my lifelong hobby has been model airplanes and sort of how I got into oh, all cool. this. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's why I'm at the company because I, I had an interest in both the legal aspects here as well as the technology. So we started off with products that were 100% consumer by law. You could not have a commercial market. Then once the commercial market started in 2016, middle of 2016, um, you had, you know, a few early adopters in the commercial world. And then I would say within a couple years or maybe a year or so, you had, uh, not only businesses buying them, but you had, uh, people in the field, in the military who were purchasing the products off the shelf with their own credit card and taking them into the, op- into, into the operations. Why? I guess, I don't know, but I guess it's pretty useful to be able to see over the next hill if you're, uh, if you've got an enemy out there and you want to survive or complete your mission. So, you know, these became just useful tools because of how well they worked, even though they weren't designed for military use or, or to meet military specifications. And then, then I think what happened is as, as DJI became more successful and alternatives in the market basically um, disappeared, there were a number of us and European companies that uh, really Faded from the market over the past couple of years, the military, I think, became uncomfortable that if they wanted a small quadcopter, a small electrically powered camera drone, the only choice uh, in terms of a capable product would be a Chinese product, whether it was ours or some of our Chinese competitors like Unique or Autel um, or Ehang. Like basically, all of the companies in the market with capable products were based in China. And I understandably, that's uncomfortable and probably something the military is going to want to do something about. But we think the the pressure really has come from there. And it's understandable, both from a, a political point of view, uh, as as well as a security point of view, that off the shelf products, uh, particularly foreign ones, are not going to be comfortably usable by the military. Right. And that's why we've seen the the creation of um, a trusted capital marketplace. Uh, it's also why the the very early memos, even before that Immigration and Customs Enforcement memo, were were Army and Navy memos that actually, when you read them closely, they mention DJI because we're the leading brand. But what they really say is that any off-the-shelf drone, flying camera, is going to pose some security risk, and therefore uh, shouldn't be used without. Validation or mitigation steps to guard against data leakage, and we we agree with that. Uh, but again, yeah, not
1: an unreasonable position.
2: Now, and uh, but but it, so I think the look. This is a long answer to your question, but I think it's it's an important one. Is that this is this is not surprising that a product developed for consumer use and then adopted for commercial and governmental use would raise uh, data security questions, uh, particularly when used by agencies that are um, understandably sensitive about using foreign technologies.
0: Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's a reprise of uh, a theme we've become a little f- too familiar with over the last few years, where uh, people in the United States are blaming China for the fact that here in the US, we don't make stuff anymore. Because in fact, there are no American uh, competitors that make anything even close to the quality of d j i and uh, i 'm sorry to have to say this to you i 'd love to be able to take you down as a uh, you know a person acting as a spokesperson with d j i and i i'm <laughs> a, a journalist <laughs> but, but uh but it's uh uh it 's just uh, a fact that there are no good american consumer drones
2: well look the um uh, there were uh, at least a couple companies that I thought I, I think actually had very credible uh, opportunities to be successful, na- namely 3d robotics and GoPro uh, GoPro being a, a public company had, had access to uh, its own very impressive camera technology as well as yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the resources of a public company. Um, but I think it was, it was a late start. And, and so what they put on the market was large and heavy and, uh, really felt like it was a generation or two behind as as it was because of the late start. You know, p- part of the story here is that we were simply first to create these amazingly capable off the shelf drone products, and uh, that's actually a, a fairly complicated thing to create. You have to you have to get motors that are spinning. You have to stabilize the camera from the shakes of those motors. You need to create a flight system where the drone doesn't just fly away. Uh, so you need GPS integration. Uh, and you need a video, you know, a, a wireless radio video downlink so that the person flying the drone can see in real time what they're framing for their shot. Um, putting all those things together is really, uh, it. it's a, it, each step builds on itself. And if you just come at it yeah. and say, okay, I'm going to start from nothing and build a drone today, you can make something fly. Absolutely. It's not hard to build a drone, but I think it's hard to integrate all those things in an elegant and powerful way. As we've been doing for oh, uh, absolutely,
0: years. I, I mean, my my feeling as a, a customer on getting the my drone was equivalent to somebody getting their first smartphone. It was just like, wow, this is f-ing magic, and <laughs> obviously the <f-ing> magic took <laughs> took quite a lot to put together. But um, to to go back to the political question, so we had this um, uh, kind of. Uh, sketchy uh, no, memo from a customs official, uh, but then things escalated to the legislative branch here in the United States. Who who carried the banner on this? Were there particular senators behind this? Or, you know, w- uh, where was the momentum behind the anti-DJI uh, movement?
2: Well, I, 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 there have been a number of bills uh, in, in Congress. Uh, I think, it's fair to say they they've come from members of Congress who tend to take a uh, a critical view of China more generally, um, not just on drones. This is not, I mean, if you look at the um, uh, you know American Security Drone Act, for example, by Senator Rick Scott of Florida, um, it could be about any technology, right? The the focus is China um, and perceived threats that relate to political issues, uh, not anything about the technology itself. You know, we've, uh, if you've traced that bill through its, its evolution so far, uh, you'll see that there is an effort to identify certain components of the drone that should not be Chinese. Uh, then the, the issue is, well, maybe it's the company that's creating it. Well, I, I mean, when you, when you step back and think about what these things are about, they're not about, the proposals are not about security because if they are about security it would inevitably lead you to, to sort of two different places. Uh, number one, why just drones? There's nothing special about drones. They're cameras that fly. And if you're concerned about a Chinese component, you should be concerned about a Chinese component in a smartphone, a radio, a television, uh, a microwave, your fridge, your car, and, and, and guess what? Don't give them any ideas.
0: <laughs> so my iPhone is as dangerous as my uh, DJI drone, is what you're more, saying. More, probably. Well, I, I, mean,
2: look, you're, uh, you're... I would say more. Well, in terms of risk profile, your, your, your smartphone is there in the middle of all of your, uh, well, not all, but many of your conversations, whether they're data transactions or voice communications or something else or just, you know, physically uh, uh, tracking your location, right? So the phone, um, exposes a lot of different types of data that I think Americans consider to be private and, and a security risk. And that's also true for the telecommunications equipment, uh, that, that may be relevant to other, uh, Chinese companies, but what is the drone? The drone is not that it's not a communications tool. It's a camera and you remotely control it. You press the button to take pictures if you want to, and there's no need to connect it to anything. So your phone doesn't work unless it's connected, and it's the connection that creates the data uh, loss risk. Your drone you can fly without ever connecting it to the internet uh, during its operation, right. and and therefore inherently the risk profile is different. So when you look at these at these bills, why stop at just drones? Would would I think be a question, and and sort of number two, um, what about risks? that might be presented if you believe the drone is some kind of special risk because of how it operates, you know, it's an aerial perspective or something like that. Well then you can't just stop it at at China. You would need to bring in other drones and say those are a risk too. And that risk has to be mitigated through something like cybersecurity standards that any product should be able to meet. So it actually makes no sense to draw the line at China versus non-China in terms of any particular product. Because you aren't solving a problem, and
0: you're actually creating a false sense of security.
1: Right. But there's another piece of And there. also,
0: the whole thing is f- ridiculous, because you can get a very, very detailed map of, for example, my hollow, where I usually fly, fly my drone. I think you can get a, uh, as useful a map of it from Google as you can from anything I take. Um, so it seems a very sort of nineteenth-century view of security risk, um, in the sense that you know you know what's over the other hill, uh, and that gives you some kind of advantage. But the, China's satellite systems already have a much uh, greater capability to spy on my holler than my drone does. <laughs>
2: Well, look, that, that really goes to, to some of the mo- most recent developments on these issues and, and perhaps the most troubling. And, and that is that, that we spent 15 months um, with the Department of Interior that came to us saying, look, we, we're the federal government agency. We have data security requirements. Uh, there's nothing out there to tell you how to meet those. We want to work with you because we, your products are 10 times better or one-tenth the cost of anything else out there. So we want to use them, but we also want them to be secure from our perspective. And we said, okay, that's not a huge market, but it makes sense to solve problems. That's what we do. We want to be innovative. So we worked with them. We created um, a solution uh, that works for their specifications. As we found out later, they had that validated by NASA, as well as the Idaho National Laboratory working for DHS CISA Mm -hmm. um, and a a third-party commercial firm. So this was this solution we created for them, which we later called government edition, uh, was validated as being secure. The data doesn't go back to China. In fact, no data leaves the drone because the point of government edition is to cut off the transfer of, uh, even the possibility of transfer of pictures and telemetry uh, to anywhere. So we created that for them and they validated it and that was announced. And then a few months later, the program was shut down. By the way, what was that program doing? Much to the point you were just raising, um, those programs were conducting uh, fire prevention and firefighting missions. Uh, They're used to count fish. They're used to for ecology missions, land stewardship and preservation, environmental missions. Um, so to to your point about you know looking at at your you know where you happen to be located, I don't know much about that area. But when you look at what the Department of the Interior was doing with drones. Um, They were basically using them to observe and fight fires in the forest. And that is clearly not a sensitive mission. Uh, Nonetheless, they had a secure product that they validated, and yet they were shut down. So I can't think of a better example of sort of proving that this is not about security because the security issues were satisfied, the mission is not sensitive, and yet the program has been shut down. And by the way, the DOI, the Department of the Interior has by far the best uh, government drone civilian drone program out there in the world they were winning awards and and getting widespread praise across the american and international uh, drone communities for putting drones to amazing beneficial uses protecting the lives of firefighters protecting property on the ground and you name it and training other agencies including state and local agencies to do the same so we we've lost at least for now really one of the gems of the federal government civilian drone program
1: and I, I don't think there's a good reason for that that's just tragic so i mean these federal agencies that uh, you said doi the department of the interior but also epa the, the usda they were all using drones yeah well i think I, uh, to varying degrees again we you know since we don't track our customers we don't
2: know exactly who's using the drones and and for what Uh, But we do hear good stories that people want to share with us, and and yes, uh, it looks like the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, was using them. We know that NOAA, the National Oceanographic uh, Atmospheric Association or agency, was using them uh, for things like whale research and and stuff like that, Um, Coast Guard and potentially life-saving missions, I,
1: I believe. Um, and and just within Interior, you have like USGS, uh, the National Park Service, yeah, fish you and wildlife, fish, fish and wildlife, yeah. yeah, yes,
2: yes. So again, we're still at the beginning of of the drone industry in terms of the use of this technology, but but th- right now is like the 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 time when the agencies are really starting to develop these amazing applications. That probably my favorite from the Department of the Interior is. Um, is prescribed burns, so you can take the drone and drop these little plastic pellets that actually start the fire um, using chemicals, and that that's a prescribed burn that creates a fire break, so that when the fire comes later in the season, it stops. Um, it's the kind of thing that's been done by helicopter uh, for years. Last year, the um, U.S. Forestry Service, U.S. Forest Service, had a a, a helicopter crash that killed the pilot. Doing that kind of operation, so now we, yeah. we can do it with a drone. There's no risk to anyone on board. It is a fraction of the cost, um, a, and it's efficient as well. And the Department of the Interior was was sort of working and had pioneered how to do that with a drone, and that's been shut down. So as this fire season starts to approach, and we, we we all know what happened in Australia over the past year, I'm very concerned that this tool that could that could more efficiently fight fires, uh, and prevent them has been grounded. Uh, even though I I can't understand what the data sensitivity issue would be, uh, for a mission that involves dropping plastic balls in the woods, which by the way, is the the data from that mission is publicly releasable. You can file a FOIA request and, and get the information about what they were doing. So where, you know, where's the justification for shutting down that kind of operation as we head towards
0: the fire season?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, Brendan. We've all got uh COVID 19 on our minds, or I assume we all do, uh, unless we are living in caves. So, what are some of the ways that drones might be useful to federal agencies in the United States, perhaps FEMA or the FDA or CDC uh, or some other agency right now in the fight against COVID 19? We're seeing a wide variety of applications, um,
2: and I, I would say some of the most popular are, are things that you can do today under existing rules using existing technology. So, for example, um, fr- from the aerial perspective, you can see whether there are people gathered uh, in a in a park or a beach or somewhere where they shouldn't be and very quickly get a sense of how many people are there without having to send somebody over there to walk through the crowd. Uh, that can allow you to respond and and try to either enforce or encourage people uh, to go home, which, uh, as we know, is the most important thing for us to be doing right now. Um, there are drones, including a model we sell that has a loudspeaker that can be attached. So you can actually provide those instructions uh, to, to disperse um, remotely by voice. You can tell people, you know, you really need to follow the guidelines and go home. Uh, beyond that, we we obviously drone delivery of, of supplies uh, is is a great application, uh, in that you can drop things off without human to human contact. Um, and we're also seeing, and this is actually a program that we worked on in China, which as you know, was first with the pandemic, uh, to spray disinfectant, uh, mm. in, in the cities. And we, we worked with a, um, an agriculture university in China to do that in a thousand counties across China and determined that it was 50 times faster than doing it by hand. Um, So every little thing matters. I think if you can warn people to go home, if you can spray uh, areas that might benefit from a disinfection, uh, that's great. And also there's all the the force-multiplying effects of drones to begin with. So as police or federal officials call out sick because they've been exposed and need to isolate themselves or if they're indeed actually sick, we have fewer people doing the same regular public safety and law enforcement and firefighting missions. And the the drone can help those people do their, their ordinary jobs, not just the pandemic-related jobs, when their colleagues are out sick. So what we're seeing is the drones being called into use um, as they would have been before the situation, but... Uh, all, all the more need for technology tools to help make jobs faster more efficient uh and, and in in many cases like firefighting
1: uh actually safer yeah 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 so so Brendan what is the situation with the legislation right now and why did the Trump administration feel like it needed to follow up with this uh executive order or this potential executive order Um, And I guess maybe, can you explain, is is there a difference between the proposed legislation as you've seen it and the EO, or are they basically the same thing?
2: Well, what we've seen is a a draft executive order that was uh, reported on by Politico. Uh, I I can't speak for the administration in terms of why they would want to do that. Um, But I, I do think it's an example of the many different types of policies that we've Seen proposed relating to uh, Chinese drones. Now, the the draft EO does a few um, other things that that go beyond the legislative proposals. Um, n- number one, federal agencies would not be permitted to purchase or use um, drones that are that are covered. And the ones that are covered are not just the ones that are made by a Chinese company or made in China, but in fact, drones that contain uh, a variety of components uh, that are made in China, and when when you look at that list and you understand the drone industry, you would realize that I don't think there is a drone product on the market, and certainly not any good ones, that don't contain at least one component made in China that would fall into those categories. So number one, it basically shuts down all the use of drones by federal agencies because of how broad. The, 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 uh, the scope is on which products are covered. Number two, uh, grant recipients uh, or, or others that are in a, an, under contract with the federal government or subject to cooperative agreements would also be restricted from purchasing um, uh, Chinese drone products. And then number three, and, and, and this, uh, again, is another step forward that is troubling, is there's a provision that would prohibit anyone from operating such a drone over federally managed lands, including uh, lands in which the U.S. government has a leasehold interest. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So what we're trying, starting to see, is that you, you know, if you're as you're flying the drone that you love out there, if you happen to be flying over uh, something owned or, or 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 managed or leased by the federal government, you're in violation. And uh, again, doesn't matter how sensitive that location is or not. Doesn't matter who you are, or who you aren't. Um, the executive order is drafted would say, you can't do that. And to me, that actually has a broader implication. That means that that whatever these uh, purported security issues are, uh, are starting to intrude into what the industry would, would tell you, I think, is, is a, as a right to fly, right? We all have a, a right of transit in the airspace. Drones are aircraft. Under federal law, you've got um, a right to go out there and fly your airplane, or your drone. And, um, you know, assuming you comply with safety regulations, of course. Um, so what that proposal seems to suggest is that the, even the right to fly, um, of an ordinary citizen might be in jeopardy because of these policies and the motivations behind them.
0: So, yeah, I think maybe the only way to get this through is to make perhaps make a comparison with guns that if, um, You know, there is uh, a portion of the metal in your Smith and Wesson that is from China. You're not allowed to use it. Um, Anyway, (laughs) um, Brendan, Kaiser, you know, talked about the Huawei treatment uh, and, you know, saying that in some ways this is what's happened to DJI. Do you see strong parallels between the Trump administration's moves against Huawei and what they've done with DJI? Or are there some important differences?
2: Well, I, I think if there's a common theme, it's that uh, being a successful Chinese company makes you a target because of the political environment we're in. Um, right. And you know, I, I, I don't have a view on sort of the specifics of each company. You know, you could also ask about ZTE, for example, and uh, you know, everyone's got a different story, and that's that's fine. But I, I I'm most familiar with TGI's story. And it's pretty amazing, you know, Frank's story of, of bringing this technology to market, perfecting it, making it affordable, easy to use. Uh, we, we are now, we've been counting uh, stories in the press on people whose lives have been saved or who've been rescued by drones in, in the scenarios I've described, namely missing persons, floods, avalanches, disoriented people after a car crash, that kind of thing, missing kids, and we're up to, I think it's now 320 people have been rescued using these battery-powered drones. So, wow. um, so the benefits are enormous, and certainly any policy should always take into account um, risks and benefits in, in any outcome, and it doesn't seem like that's happening. Instead, the identity of the company in terms of where it's headquartered uh, seems to be the the principal factor in in the policies and if you're a market leader or at least visibly successful it seems like that's going to draw attention and there aren't too many companies out there that i think are uh, look i i think <laughs> another example maybe for your list is tiktok right and and whose parent company is bite dance and i see they're getting a lot of attention because they're the up and coming very popular uh, uh new social media video app and Again, I'm not sure what's sensitive about people doing social media videos of their hobbies and and activities. And yet there's been a significant amount of attention uh, on that company. And I think, again, the pattern is if you're a successful company in your industry and you're headquartered in China, you're going to get scrutiny, even if there's no substantive issue
1: relating to security. And even if there's substantial benefits from it.
0: I think that's true, although I I would hesitate to compare DJI to TikTok because uh, I think the security risks are different in the sense that uh, TikTok is a potential vector of political influence, whereas I don't think my drone is going to... Uh, feed me misinformation uh, about the American election.
1: Yeah, um, I need you to spend some time on TikTok there, Jeremy. <laughs> Take a look at what's I, I, actually going
0: oh, on. Oh, 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 I have, I have. Okay, okay. I, 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 don't, I, I really don't think DJI should compare itself to TikTok because uh, <laughs> like, like Huawei and ZTE, the, the worries are well-founded, even if they're not scientifically executed. Whereas the reason why I'm happy to... Um, do this, and you know, talk to Brendan and not treat him like a spin doctor, but like a, a reasonable person. Is because I I think the risks are very different. Uh, I
2: agree, <laughs> but I think the, the 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 trigger for the attention is the success, right? If if any of these companies, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. And and so that's the that's the similarity. I I think, as I said before, if, if you wanted to get into the differences, both in terms of uh, the story of the companies. And, and the nature of their technology, we, we could talk for another hour. Because uh, you're absolutely right. As, as I said before, uh, the drone is a camera, and you decide what you take a picture of, and it doesn't need to go anywhere, unlike a social media app who, whose entire value is the sharing of data and information, uh, and as you point out, in two directions, uh, thereby providing uh, 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 perhaps capabilities that are different in kind. Uh, but I agree with you. The you know if you think if you know if you know drone technology, what it does and how it's used, a, a, and the ways in which you can actually mitigate the data security risks, just like the Department of the Interior actually did, and and validated, uh, then you wouldn't be worried about DJI. You would only have a political issue with the success of a Chinese company.
1: Right, right. Well, more brilliant ideas from the Department of cutting off our nose Despite our face. Uh, yay, Trump Brendan, thank you so much for joining us uh, We've been chatting with Brendan Schulman, VP for Public Policy and Legal Affairs At the Shenzhen-based drone giant DJI Man, I I am going to go buy a drone I, I'm This has just been making me itch for this But um, I wish you luck, man Stick around, we're going to do some recommendations You're going to
0: need uh, it <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you uh, Before we do recommendations I do want to remind listeners That the Cynical Podcast is powered by Sup China. If you like this podcast and the other fine shows in our network, the way you keep us going is to subscribe to SubChina's Access Newsletter. For just 88 bucks a year, you get this excellent newsletter delivered to your inbox. You know, I'm going to do Seneca 10. It's the 10th anniversary of Seneca uh, in on, in April. So uh, use the, the code Seneca10. Get a, what, 25% off. 66 bucks is, is all we're asking for a year. You get early ad free access to this podcast. You get discounted admission to our major conferences and free admission to our live podcast recordings and all sorts of more stuff. So sign I, up and, I hope you asked
0: our publisher's permission for that discount, Kaiser. But anyway, uh, I have. It's already going. <laughs> it's, oh, going. it's going. It's okay. going, man. Oh, I, it's oh, it's oh, a real I discount. <laughs> I didn't even know about
1: that. Okay. <laughs> 66 bucks. Yeah. Get it out there, Jeremy. Okay. On to recommendations here. Jeremy, start us off.
0: Yeah, well, uh, 66 bucks that's a good number. I should just mention that I recently checked my social credit score on Weibo and my social credit score is 666. Yes, Uh, all right. (laughs) Satan approves. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to recommend two things from my native land of South Africa. One is a radio station called Fine Music Radio. Which you can find on. Let me just check the URL. It is uh, j.mp/fmr, as in Fine Music Radio FMR stream, and it's it plays. It's a Cape Town-based uh, radio station uh, plays jazz and classical music, and I'm somewhat biased, or at least I was introduced to it by. Uh, my university classmate and dear friend Evan Milton, who on Thursdays at 3 p.m. New York time uh, has a show of two hours of South African music, which is pretty good. Uh, it may be on hiatus for a couple of weeks because they're trying to figure out how to do things when nobody's supposed to go to work because South Africa is also on lockdown. But it's a it's a really good radio station. Um, and... Uh, just uh, similar, a uh, website that covers um, their mission statement is something about social justice, uh, but they do a great job of reporting on various issues around Africa called newframe.com, newframe.com. And they've also started a COVID19 music podcast that you can find on their homepage right now, which has uh, some very nice jazz and salavarian music and reggae. Um, So, yeah, those two things.
1: Okay, excellent. Good recommendations.
2: Uh, Brendan, what do you have for us? Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to make a recommendation. So uh, my wife is a novelist, and so I uh, must recommend her latest novel, which uh, is called Eternal Life. Her name is Dara Horn, H-O-R-N. And it is uh, there's actually an interesting tech angle to it. So this is a book that's about a woman who can never die, literally, um, hence the title Eternal Life. And if you think about some of the more interesting uh, and amusing stories in the past several years from the tech industry, you have a number of tech entrepreneurs who've been searching for the secrets of immortality, um, including uh, genetic-type uh, discoveries. Um so the the book really it goes through generations of this woman's life and what it means to not die, uh, as well as kind of her her relatives who are trying to coincidentally explore technologies that might cause you know cause you to have eternal life, and sort of at the end of the end of the story, you sort of think about what um, you know what does it mean to live forever and what's the value of life. So obviously in these very exceptional uh, times when we're, we're hearing all kinds of um horrible things in the news about you know just how precious life is uh, i thought
1: this might be a, a good recommendation you know i'm i'm looking at it right now it's available on audiobook um f- from uh, audible and uh it gets really good ratings it's a four star rating 119 reviews of this book looks really good Oh yeah, I'm she she's uh, serious right now. Yeah. Oh, thank you. She's a serious
2: All novelist, right. well well
1: reviewed in the Times and elsewhere. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's great. I'm a big reader so uh, and I'm an even bigger audiobook fanatic and I I it was just in the market for my next listen, so thank you. I'm going to make a couple of coronavirus related recommendations. Uh one is the recent New Yorker article by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Um, who is an MD as well as a regular contributor to The New Yorker, and he's fantastic. Uh, he's looking at how the viral load, the, the actual amount of virus to which somebody is exposed, uh, may be a big factor in determining health outcomes for people who are infected with, with, um, with uh, the, the, the virus. I, I really love this guy. His writing is just great. I've, I've recommended The Gene Intimate History before on this show. Uh, he's actually probably more famous for his book on Cancer, Emperor of Maladies, which is also just great. Um, my other recommendation is also from The New Yorker, and it's the interview with Isaac Chotner. Um, he, he's the, the review, interviewer of this guy Richard A. Epstein of the Hoover Institution. It's it's like a master class on how not to behave when being interviewed. Uh, while while we're at I mean, I don't know what you think of uh, the question of, that the the journalist asked, uh, but there was another master class recently on how not to be interviewed by the senior WHO uh, advisor Bruce Aylward uh, when he was asked about Taiwan during a Skype interview. Ooh, boy, that was hard to watch. Did you see that, Jeremy? Uh,
0: Yeah, I did.
1: That was just, uh, I mean, it would have been so easy for him to just say, I am not a political advisor, but an epidemiologist for the WHO. And so that question is really kind of beyond my purview, which might have not have been completely honest, but it might have gotten him off the hook. I mean, that was just...
0: Well, uh, Ka- Ka- Kaiser, you do have experience doing PR for a company that you know, has difficult questions to answer. So maybe it would slip a little more easily off your tongue than his. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man, it slips so easily <laughs> off my tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> Brendan, thank you once again. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Jeremy, as always, man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as a as China bashery as I have become lately, I, I really hope that DJI uh, can continue to sell its drones in America because uh, my current drone is, you know, probably going to wear out in a year or two or three,
1: and I'll need a new one. So good luck, Brendan. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm going to go get one. I got to secure like an online speaking gig first and then I'll go get one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Thanks, yeah. guys. S-
1: sell care. some Bitcoin. Yeah, I'll sell some Bitcoin. The relatively new
2: Mavic Mini is uh, is like one of our smallest and most affordable drones and it's actually pretty capable. It's It's got, it's it's actually a really good example of what I was talking about. Just refining and refining the technology, making it smaller and lighter um, is something that, comes from a decade of, of working on the same technology cool
1: well i that's that's on my my shopping list then cool the cynical podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Cynica network our show is produced by kaiser guo and jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by jason mcronald drop us an email at cynica at subchina.com. follow us on twitter or on facebook at, at sup news and make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our growing network watch the space for announcements of new network shows thanks for listening and we'll see you next week take care